Welcome to the Geopolitical Pivot, the George Kennan Roundtable, Episode 3. Um, this is a special, uh, I guess, episode, but before I continue, I want to allow our good friend Daniel, um, he wanted to provide a brief statement to our fellows over there in, in Europe, so Dan, take it away. Of course, of course. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, Russians who might be listening in, maybe some Russian soldiers in Ukraine. Welcome to hell. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's to the point. Dan, your, your Spanish is awful, man. Your Spanish is awful. Oh, that was Spanish. I know, my Spanish that isn't was, great. That, was, that must be... They're attacking Venezuela. Right. Oh, oh. I'll bring to Ecuador. You can learn some great lessons over there. Oh, that's Brian. Just to let you know. Well, yeah, I mean, we should probably do some introductions first. We got a couple guests, right? Yeah, you and then Robert. But Robert, you know, we want to actually have you introduced first. Um, you can wait later. And Brian, you're not reintroducing yourself. <laughs> but that's fine. But Brian, oh, not Brian, Jesus. Robert, <laughs> the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, so I'm Rob. Uh, actually, from the land of Ukraine, the uh, Great Plains and whatnot, and you know, uh, Slava Ukraina. You know, for all the Russians listening, of, of course. Uh, needless to say, I have a very strong background and general knowledge of the area, of the people, the culture, and just the general way things kind of run down on a day to day basis. I also currently talk with people who are in the whole mess of it all. So, you know, uh, I'm here to give my perspective on this whole Russo-Ukrainian war part two, uh, if you don't mind. I mean, is it really a part two? It is a part two, because they fought in 1917. Okay. So he carries grudges deep, Robbie. I can tell. It's <laughs> Eastern Europe. We carry very <laughs> You're right. But, um, well, it's good to have you, Robbie. I'm, I'm hopeful to hear something about Ukraine I've never heard before. Um, Women are beautiful. And that's good to know. It's good to know. Save one now while you still can. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, we're trying to get some professionalism back into but this. But you know what? The whole good thing about the George Cannon group at Full Roundtable is that, you know, yeah, we're talking about professional stuff, but this is just like a kickback chill plus Brian. So. I <laughs> 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 well, we love Brian. But I love you, Brian. Um, but we have a lot really to talk about. Um, today in the time that we do have it and i know first on the agenda really is the strategic summary if that's correct with uh what's kind of what's going on right now with ukraine um and you know it's just a lot of things has transpired since literally like 9 30 last night um what, what, what brian we're for we still need to introduce him. Oh, shit. I forgot. <laughs> this is our first customer for the Go. Sorry, sorry, listeners. Samaj, you yeah. had a couple to drink. And, you know, he's, he's really in his feelings right I'm now. I'm in my feels right now. I first, I'm so sorry, Wayne. It's all right. It's all right. Hey, we're going to get to me eventually. I'm at the end of the program. For, for the listeners for the listeners out there, you know, my name is Wainwright Clark. and Samaj brought me in here to talk about uh, force structure and and military sustainment issues pertaining to Russia, uh, but in my mostly my work kind of revolves around uh, weapons exploitation in Latin America and then Trans-Tasman relations. But uh, now that all the introductions are out of the way, Samash can give his lovely summary of what's been happening. There's been a lot happening right now. That's an under, but even then, that's an understatement. Um, we 
currently what I've been, what we have been able to see today, since just the culmination of kind of what we knew would happen over the past few months with the constant military Russian buildups, not just on the Ukrainian border, but also the Belarusian um, Ukrainian border. It's interesting because if people don't know who Alexander Dugan is, um, this is kind of falling into play of his notions of pan-Eurasianism, um, but with the intertwining of Russian-based nationalism. Um, today, or last night, I should say, Russia orchestrated uh, the beginnings of their military invasion of Ukraine. Um, something that Putin, in his statement, which was pre-recorded, mm-hmm. uh, indicated that it was time to, that Russia could not feel a sense of security and that um, it was time for him to initiate a special military operation to quote unquote demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Which is ironic because the president's Jewish. Some absolute bullshit considering they also made a list of names of people they want to put in camps and execute. But you know, while we're throwing names around about who the Nazis are. But it was an interesting it was an interesting thing he did though. The denazification reasons for coming in. Get rid of the Nazis. I mean, Ukraine has had a bad uh, past of yeah. anti-Semitism, as you know and I know. Um, and until the '90s, they had an institute over there that was actively promoting anti-Semitism. Uh, what was the name of it? Probably uh, the OUN. Yes. But that, without getting into a very deep history lesson, there was two groups of that. Mm-hmm. Nationalism now is seen much more negatively than it was seen in the '20s and '30s when mm-hmm. it was actually were around. And so, when people think of nationalism now, they think of the whole Nazi thing. Mm-hmm. Nationalism used to just be like pride of your country, more along the lines of patriotism, mm-hmm. which for a lot of these countries in the post World War One era, pretty much was the reason they started to exist. And so, the UN split, and Stefan Bandera and his mm-hmm. right to uh, <laughs> cause as much chaos as yeah. possible. And in Western Ukraine and in Ukraine in general, he's still seen as a very controversial figure because while he did try to support an independent Ukrainian state, he also did kill a lot of Jews and killed a lot of uh, Germans and mm-hmm. Soviets. So a very you know, divisive figure, to say the least. But I mean, Putin's, that was interesting what he did with the, just bringing up the Nazis. You know, everyone hates the Nazis, right? So mm-hmm. he's, he's trying to win the public opinion, even though it's already kind of lost for him, I think. But he's still trying to turn that old page. No, I agree. Um, and like we talked about in the first two episodes, I think also in the previous episode of essentially how this war was essentially was going to start. Um, I, we brought up the notion that the conventional placements of Russian personnel strategically was the smoke and mirror op- game. You look at it, we're putting these Iskander missiles, these grab missile systems, we're putting the electronic warfare missile systems, etc. But that's not where the war was going to start. It was going to start in the Donbass. It was going to start with the activation of proxy forces first. And then that's essentially what he did with the legitimizing of both the quote-unquote People's Republics and then immediately sent in the Russian troops. But the actual confrontation started with the activation of proxy forces that were already in Kiev as well as other parts of of Ukraine. It gave him, it was a manufactured strategic excuse essentially to then send in conventional uh, Russian troops to support proxy positions. And initially one of the largest artillery strikes that we've seen in Since like World War II. <laughs> Since World, World War II. One thing that we should bring or just mention in general is this is, a, this is the first time in 
modern warfare where there is actually two relatively civil civilized countries fighting each other. This sure. is this is actual modern warfare. This is not the Middle East where there's no air superiority or you know where there's you know completely asymmetric jihadist fighting. This is actual two European powers duking it out. And I think that especially further down the line, regardless of how this ends up going, people will look at this and say this is the this is the first major experience of what actual modern warfare looks like. In in the post or middle of the techno technological revolution. All right. So what we had, I mean we had the justification, right? Mm -hmm. The artillery strikes. What happened next, Brian? What was the next thing that? Oh, Brian's boiling over there. <laughs> I have, uh, there's a lot. So, with Putin's speech last night saying that he was starting operations in um, Ukraine, his special operations, mind you, right, we, right away there was already reports of, of grad rockets, basically like Katusha trucks firing off rockets into Ukrainian cities around the, in the border, defense positions, etc., and like a bunch of war, cruise missiles from warships in the Black Sea hitting ports such as Odessa, Mariupol, um, as well as others. This is, seeing this, this is usually one of the main tactics in Russian doctrine. It's usually to fire off fire off as much of her as possible to soften up the enemy, its defenses, and even to demoralize them in some sense. This has been used in other areas, such as during World War II against the Germans. It's even been used in parts of Afghanistan. And it is very commonplace in Russian doctrine. And I just wanted to say first off, it's just the sh if anyone's been looking at what's been put off on social media, or even just on news channels, this is a sheer amount of rockets that were fired Overnight, for for me right now, it's just unimaginable. Like I don't think there is any time in modern history since the end of the Cold War where you've seen this much rocket fire, rocket power, whatever, just hitting, just hitting like targets in a country. And what were the targets primarily? I would say a lot of them did hit military installations. Some of them did hit government institutions. For example, there were cruise missiles that hit the Ukrainian intelligence service in Kiev. And I would say a lot of them were government military targets. Um, the intelligence, I'm not sure if they any hit any civilian targets, but I would imagine some did because a lot of the a lot of the missile strikes are from grad rockets. These are unguided rockets where compared to the US doctrine, whereas we try to minimize civilian casualty, the Russians They'll just fire a cluster of bombs and hope they hit their target. That I is mean, while we're talking, sorry. Uh, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead, Dan. While we're talking about you know civilian casualties and these grad rockets, um, obviously we were speaking earlier today about the uh, capturing of Chernobyl by the Russians, and I've just been looking at some data from some open source analysts who were going over radiation levels for the region. Mm -hmm. There's been a significant enough spike in radiation in the southern Belarus, northern Ukrainian area to suggest that it's possible the sarcophagus might have been breached. Um, and it's possible that there's a critical containment breach going on there right now. So that is a wonderful consequence of this whole conflict and of Russia just not giving a damn where their munitions land. Well, I mean, that, that um, goes into when we were talking about the tactics. I mean, if you think about it, 
Putin kind of explicitly stated it's for the demilitarization of Ukraine. Yes, he, uh, he offered terms today to the Ukrainian president that is, Ukraine can surrender as long as they uh, swear to never join NATO and to never have a military. And I don't know what the reply to, uh, to uh, that general idea of a peace agreement was, but I imagine it was full of expletives and uh, unseen words that probably shouldn't be said on. I know, <laughs> obviously, I know when looking through to see what the response was, uh, I know it was basically they were not going to negotiate with the Russians. That's what I remember seeing from uh, but why would Zelensky. You? That is the point. You, what? you, you, sh- well, what? you shouldn't. But, I mean, at the same time, as we were alluding to, that I guess for Putin's psyche when he talked about the demilitarization, uh, I will even add demoralization um, to not just Ukrainian government officials, but it's also for the notion of, I mean, they're already making up plans of who they're going to assassinate after they annexed and took over part, or not even annexed, but quote-unquote liberated um, parts of Ukraine. But, oh, damn, yeah. Yeah, um, so just sort of bouncing off of that or building off of that, um, I sort of expected to see a lot more uh, cyber warfare and electronic warfare going on inside of Ukraine. And I'm a bit suspicious that part of the reason we haven't seen that is the fact that the Russians want the Ukrainian people to see what they're doing, to see the successes that they're having in order to try and force a quick surrender. Um, Yeah, Dan, I'm going to push back on this a little bit because there were air assault operations and there were paratrooper operations. And doctrinally, at least for the Russians, there needs to be a great deal of air superiority for that to happen, i.e. there can't be a lot of ground fire coming up to hit the helicopters, hit the planes. And the only way to do that is to either bomb everything into oblivion or do those operations where there is no cover, right? You're just doing them in like an old, in a jungle or something like that. Or you need cyber operations to kind of minimize the resistance. And I think Brian has something on that. Well, first off, with some of the side some of the cyber operations there has been there has been some signs that the russians have been trying to disable the internet in ukraine they can't do it directly because they don't have control over ukraine when it comes to that aspect but they have caught they have caused problems in internet traffic in the eastern parts of ukraine there's been a, there's been noted sources of, of a spike of this where the internet usage has gone down in some parts of ukraine and as well, there were some, I heard some reports that they were trying to target power lines in other areas to try to help disrupt the, some of the information flow. And, and the, disrupting the information is the way to make air assault and airborne operations happen. Because you disrupt that, you can't respond effectively to different incursions. And it gives the Russians time to bring up sustainment enterprises to make the As well happen. as cyber attacks that did happen prior to the invasion, mm-hmm. which can disrupt information, especially of hearing that Russian troops have invaded. Well, I think that kind of realistically is going really good with the point of how this looks from the Ukrainian civilian perspective. Because people people always forget about the people who are in there. You know, you see the military, you see the boots on the ground, but everybody forgets there's still people there. So if, if you, you know, a lot of Ukrainians woke up technically Thursday morning and were realized they were getting, you know, shot at. And the whole, there's a big blood feud between the two countries. Not between the people, but between the actual mm-hmm. government. And the Ukrainian people government and their government versus just the Russian government. 
And so the from the human perspective, the Ukrainians have a much higher morale. They might be poorly equipped and they might not have an air force and to be completely frank, they might not have a lot of things. But they have a very high morale, they have a very high will to fight because unlike the Russians who are seeing this as them basically conquering their little brother, which surprisingly enough actually led to an entire surrender of the battalion, um, the Ukrainians are fighting for their home. And mm -hmm. that, that will always be the bigger morale boost at the end of the day. Yep. And a lot of people now, it's been reported multiple times that in Kiev, uh, 10,000 people were armed with rifles, mm -hmm. just average average people, average partisans, armed and ready to fight for their, you know, they, they might not have had any military training, but they're ready to fight for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing that the Russians are not totally taking into account, is they were expecting this to be probably over by the end of the week. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look like that. It looks like they're going to be bogged down. And that's going to be a problem for their sustained enterprises later on. But no, I actually, I actually wanted to ask you some more questions. I've seen reports of thousands, maybe tens of thousands of AK-style rifles being handed out to average Ukrainian citizens. Can any of you guys collaborate? Yeah, so, yeah, no. so the, the, uh, the main assembly of Ukraine passed the law Wednesday before they eventually just left and disbanded uh, that basically said anybody in Ukraine can have, have a weapon. They said we don't care. They said, you can have a weapon. All things considered, everybody needs to be armed. So the people are arming themselves, and they're getting arms from the government. You can stop by your local recruiting station in Ukraine and get a rifle. Now, Dan and I, it sounds like we're in fire on heaven now, don't we? You got, you got, what do you got to say, man? Um, yeah, just uh, sort of while we're talking about most recent um, updates regarding that, I've been seeing some... Uh, conflicting reports indicating that some of the uh, special services folks who were fighting for the um, airport north of Kiev are now moving in or towards some of the outskirts of Kiev, uh, despite not entirely holding that airport. There's been some reports of irregular warfare bombs being planted under vehicles, as well as reports that Kiev is supposed to start being shelled and hit by airstrikes pretty heavily by around 4 a.m. tonight. So if anyone is listening to this from Ukraine, you haven't heard that announcement already, try to find some kind of shelter by 4 a.m. because that is probably when things are going to kick off. The best shelter yeah. to go to is the subways. They're, they were built to survive nuclear blasts. So Yeah, the, the, metros, the metros can handle yeah. that the for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of that, actually, um, that brings up the actually the importance of that, was it that airport? Right outside of Kiev, that which one? Russia. What was? Uh, oh, the, the, yeah, the, the military, yeah. the cargo airport. Right. Um, the paratroop operations. Yeah. So the significance, if you, Wainwright, if you want to talk about it, um, or even Brian, you want to chime in on the the, the, uh, the paratrooper operations and the significance of it. Essentially, I mean, if they were able to essentially do a deep penetration air operation to achieve this airfield, now they have a. Um, or so, what a I guess like a makeshift base operations really outside of Kiev, where essentially they can furtherize, deploy spec ops or reinforcements of uh, materials, military equipment, etc. So I mean, Brian, if you well, want to talk on it, the thing when it comes to the airborne operations, those are like what they did with taking over the airfield outside of uh, Kiev. That usually is just general military doctrine, general, not just from Russia, but from anyone to take over 
certain targets inside of the enemy territory. And I think with the VDV operation, which is the uh, paratroopers of Russia, I think they're what they were expecting from the operation was the VDV would come in, they would secure the airport pretty quickly, and then the reinforcements coming in from where from the from the direction of where Chernobyl is, they thought they would come in sooner to reinforce that area, as well as send in other VDV reinforcements that they'd be able to march in Kiev, as well as to use it as an air bridge, as a lot of the news media has been talking about. Though, for those who have been following the news up to now, that airfield recently been retaken back by Ukrainian forces, and well, specifically yeah. by Ukrainian Spetsnaz, Special Forces units. And Russia did not get to hold on to it, which is a pretty big, I'd say it's pretty significant because people were expecting this to be like a huge operation for the Russians to bring in massive amounts of armaments and troops, etc. But I think because of some of the efforts that the Ukrainian troops did in Chernobyl before they withdrew, I think that helped to, for them to take out that air, to take the VDV out of that airfield. I think that's will be. It's still undetermined how important it's going to be for a later operation, but it is a pretty good booster for morale for the Ukrainian troops and for the Ukrainian population in general. Well, I mean, it's true you can speak testaments of the Ukrainians will fight, but airborne operations are always risky operations because you're you're operating at least in the beginning without a logistical tail. Without you're, you're fighting with what you have. Now, if you take an airfield or roads or something like that, at least in American doctrine, you can get resupplied. These airborne units can get resupplied and everything can happen pretty well. The problem, though, Russian airborne units, they're not used to being sustained by the air. They're used to being sustained by rail. That's how the Russians move most of their equipment, their men, their services by rail. They have, I think, Ten whole brigades that are just railway brigades that do that. They they do cargo loading and unloading. That's all they do. They don't do road operations. They don't do air operations. None of that. And if if this airfield right was the only way that stuff could get moved to these airborne units, and it didn't happen, that shows me that there is something wrong with the Russian military. That they have overlooked something in their sustainment enterprise and structure that will prevent them from operating seamlessly throughout this entire campaign. Well, I think that could be, sorry to cut in, I think that could be the fact that they weren't expecting this tough of a fight. I think, because that's one thing that, that has been seen amongst a lot of the Russians that have been captured, is that they were not expecting this hard of a fight. And for all intents and purposes, I understand we're only about 24 hours into the whole invasion of Ukraine right now, maybe a little less. For all intents and purposes, Ukraine's held up remarkably well considering the fact that the country that they're fighting against as an army that's like double their size. I mean, Russia has made advancements, but nothing too, too significant right now. Not in communications or sustainment. They're, they are, I can talk about their logistics and their sustainment problems. They are about a, a quarter of the way into their modernization of their logistics forces and mm -hmm. units. They have thousands of small outdated Soviet warehouses where they store and move equipment. And they're trying to replace them with uh, production and logistics complexes, about 25 of them arranged throughout um, Russia. And right now, they've only constructed, they've constructed one PLC, uh, production logistics complex, and they have two that are about halfway built. Well, they're not ready. They're not ready to move this amount of equipment to this amount of men in the time 
that they have to pacify Ukraine. They're going to have problems doing this. Well, that's one of the uh, things that, that is known historically of Russia. They are known for trying to use their army in a massive force and trying to do swift operations as of recent, since, since after World War II. The problem is, though, they have never been good throughout most of their history with logistics. That's you correct. Can look at World, you can look at World War One. It was very hard for them to send in logistics. Same thing in World War Two. And then it's it's never been a strong suit of the Russians, and in some cases it still isn't, which is also why I was saying earlier when we were talking about the VDV, the operation of the airbase, I think the VDV were very much banking on the troops in Belarus to reach them fast enough to mm -hmm. resupply them and get them more reinforcements so they can push forward. I don't think the VDV, I think I don't think it would have been that easy to for the Air Force to have reinforced them. Especially because right now, what people don't realize is Ukraine right now has a lot of Stinger missiles, and those have been known very well to take down Russian aircraft. Well, in, in that, in the lack of the ability of these airborne units to be reinforced, points to a problem in communication, which is another issue the Russians have always had. Which makes me think very high level, because there was a, a report that came out of the Daily Mail today that said 150 Russian officers in their military were basically sending a letter to Putin that said, "Look, we're not going to do this." And so I don't know. Again, that's that's one report, so I can't I can't say with solidity, you know, solidity that. Do, to do what, Robbie? What do you mean by not doing not that? not go to war? Okay. Like, to to basically end this whole thing because they weren't ready. No, they just yeah. So Ukrainian or the Russians, the Russians don't see Ukrainians as their enemy, and Putin never gave a good casus belli to really get this going. And so that's why you're seeing all these mass protests. It also doesn't exactly help that. Russians are now going to take little arrows of money to buy loaves of bread and whatnot because they're getting cut out of the economic system. But just, it's it's very, it seems like this was a slightly half-baked plan mm -hmm. that under, that yeah, that did the, uh, that, that Russia didn't realize that they had to, or that Russia didn't realize they underestimated their And that's the downside. Well, and on and that lovely note, I think Robbie, I have to step out. I have to go. Uh, go get some learned edit education. <laughs> well, it was lovely having you. Yeah, thank you, Robert. I will be on for the next episode, I'm sure. So, All right. Yeah, you will be. We'll see, you, we'll see you then. Thank you very much for your time. Yes. Uh, there was one thing involving... Oh, Brian's still here. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry. I have to leave everybody with Brian. <laughs> it's all right. What are you saying? Yes, you are. Well, hey, hey, speak your truth. Speak it, uh, speak your speech. With what Brian. Rob's final point uh, being with, um, like, a Putin not giving a Cassus Belli for the entire operation, you can actually see that right now because there's in St. Petersburg, there's over a thousand people protesting the Russian the war, anti-war protests. And right now protests in Moscow are starting to pick up as anti-war protests. There is proof out there right now that the Russians are not happy with this conflict. Sure, they're pro I think there's still a majority that maybe are supporting Putin for whatever reason. But there is a huge, significant amount of people who do not want this war. And a thousand people for a protest in Russia, as repressive as it is, that is a huge number, honestly, for a Russian protest. Dan, what do you got to say about that? I know you have connections in Russia in specific parts. Yeah. Um, so there has been a lot of pushback. A lot of it's been coming from Russians who are internationally placed. A lot of it has been coming domestically, um, over 150 uh, personnel, sorry, uh, officials signed a document asking Putin to pull off the attack. And a few months ago, several uh, former military commanders were actually calling for him to resign. 
So there's definitely a not insignificant uh, resistance to his actions inside of Russia. But the important thing that we sort of have to consider here so we don't end up making the same mistake that was made during the Bay of Pigs is realizing that just because these Russians may be very much against Putin's actions, against him doing this, that doesn't necessarily mean that they would be willing to stand up and put themselves at a significant amount of risk in order to try and change things internally, especially given the way the Russian government tends to respond to protests or outbursts. I mean, Navalny was nearly killed. Plenty of opposition individuals have been assassinated inside and outside the country. Um, objectively, you know, whole groups that have collaborated with each other have been wiped out. Um, there have been plenty of just straight up assassinations in the streets of uh, members of opposition movements over there. And the government is more than willing to do whatever it takes to eliminate the opposition if they feel any kind of threat coming to them. So I think that while it is significant that this is happening, um, we are not going to see any real action from, or we're not going to see any serious threats to the Putin regime from inside of Russia unless they are coming from the people in his inner circle and they are not going to be affected by sanctions. They might be a bit annoyed about that, but the only thing that is going to really have a significant impact on them as individuals to the point that they might start speaking up and asking Putin to pull back from what he's doing is if they start to genuinely fear for their lives as individuals. What do you got, Samaj? You're thinking pensively over there. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, that makes sense. Um, if you understand the, the power structure, the hierarchy, in a conversation earlier about this, I, uh, with uh, a relative, actually, that the, the the establishment of essentially how Putin has been able to accumulate power since 1999, yeah, the oligarchs do have some um, presence within some policy uh, decision making, primarily economic side, they're still in debt to Vladimir Putin and his security services. Uh, most of the people that are in charge in Russia are affiliated with the Russian military industrial complex. So, quite frankly, Putin doesn't doesn't care if the oligarchs lose hundreds of billions of dollars. Quite frankly, he has punished oligarchs before to demonstrate that uh, he is willing to go after anybody that is in the way of his rule. Um, Understanding the, well, not even understanding, but just observing the strategic situation they were in, what Robert alluded to earlier, is that I don't personally think Vladimir Putin anticipated for uh, Ukrainian civilians um, to become part of that resistance against Russian the Russian invasion so quickly. Um, I don't think that that the Russians, at least looking at the ethnic demographics of Eastern Ukraine, um, I didn't. I don't think that the Russian government anticipated that there would be some difficulties, even as uh, William Wright talked about logistics and communications. Um, we kind of understood, even geographically speaking, that if Russia wanted to really invade Ukraine, it it would have had to have been during this season, not during the spring, not during the summer. Um, understanding some of the terrain in eastern Ukraine, it would be a, a literal logistical nightmare more than it is right now for the Russian Federation to get from Volgograd or Volgograd to, I don't know, um, or wherever they need to wherever go. Wherever they need to go. Let's go with that. There we go. Um, I think looking at the tactics um, side of things where uh, we kind of talked about in the first and second episodes of the Jewish Kenny uh, Roundtable that it would have been it would have been and has been instigated by the activation of proxy groups 
um, in Kyiv and in other parts of, of Ukraine um, with the Russian uh, conventional armed forces operating as essentially in, uh, in the uh, support role. Um, and then in some cases when we're looking at northern Ukraine, southern Belarus, um, the Russian military took a much more act, a much more proactive offensive role. Um, what Brian brought up with the usage of MLRS is multiple launching rocket systems, um, cruise missiles, electronic warfare, um, T-72s, um, etc. This is the first really true conventional uh, crisis that we have had post-Cold War. Um, and a lot of people, I know a lot of people over the past couple months that, that since this has been brewing, they wanted to be optimistic and didn't believe that all this would happen. But you don't send 120,000 troops to a border to not do anything. Like that that's not something that you you just do and then like, oh never mind, I'm just gonna send them home. No, that you don't do that. You don't send Iskander missiles. You don't beef up Kaliningrad. You don't reposition amphibious assault ships. You don't try to do exercises near the uh, United Kingdom, but then they got pushed off because the Irish were like, you're not doing it here. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Ireland. <laughs> um, but you don't do all, you don't do the, the incremental uh, cyber attacks, um, deliberate cyber attacks on particular um, Ukrainian departments such as Foreign Affairs and Department of Defense, um, just the one day to say, never mind, we're just playing the group, over. we're just here to prove a point. No, this was a deliberate act of work. The other things that you need to talk about also, well, you mentioned cyber attacks, obviously, that is something that is a huge indicator because that is used for Russian hybrid doctrine. The other thing is disinformation campaigns. So what happens on social media. When Russian state media starts spinning stories, especially stories that can be very proven to be highly inaccurate or whatever, that's usually a sign. The last time we saw this was in 2014. We've seen this in 2008 with Georgia. And this is usually another sign of hybrid warfare. And one of the craziest things also for stuff that's been moved around the border, 150,000 troops, tanks, electronic equipment, etc., is in the recent in the recent hours, I was actually looking at an article where Russia placed three Slava craft class cruisers in the Mediterranean. For those who don't know, the Slava-class cruiser is known in the West as a carrier killer, meant to attack carrier, U, U.S. carrier groups, aircraft carrier groups, solo, just by themselves, due to the missiles that they have on them. And three of them were placed, one near the entrance to the Black Sea, one near Syria, and another one near Italy. And these were meant specifically, and I'm pretty sure these were meant specifically to counter U.S. counter any U.S. or any NATO involvement in the Ukraine conflict. Yeah, essentially shut down the eastern, uh, well, the central and eastern Mediterranean, um, fortify the entrance into the Black Sea, um, as well as I mean that's also sort of a way for them to reinforce their position in Syria if they need to utilize any equipments there, they'd be able to reposition it um, to a much more anti-naval operation. If, if it ever came to that, then you had your hand up. Uh, while we are on the topic of um, attempts by Russia to prevent involvement from the West or from anyone, um, I think that we should obviously sort of 
get at the elephant of the elephant in the room about that topic, which is the implied and threatened use of tactical and theater nuclear weapon systems. Um, and I think the part of the reason that we really need to talk about that isn't because of the whole, you know, the, the, the idea of like, well, Ukraine is not a NATO country. Ukraine is not obligated to be defended by other NATO countries. Um, and there isn't technically a treaty based obligation uh, for the U.S. or for any other Western country to get involved to help out Ukraine outside of, you know, sending well wishes effectively, well wishes and guns. Um, but what we really need to look at about the way Russia is doing this is not only is this setting a precedent where nuclear weapons are not mutually assured destruction, but individually assured atrocity. I mean, you can, as an authoritarian regime, say, we will hit your forces with nuclear weapons if you try to get involved here. And then if you can then use that to commit whatever atrocities you're going to do and then carry on your merry way without facing any international consequences for it, besides some sanctions, which again, no international consequences for it, that sets a precedent for China when you're looking at Taiwan, it sets precedents for North Korea, it sets precedents for plenty of nuclear countries, eventually it'll set precedents for Iran. Um, and we need to really consider how we're responding to that because we are setting the tone right now for the future of limited nuclear war and for limited modern warfare uh, with every other nation that is watching this unfold right now. And this is a paradigm shift for that reason. Uh, the other thing on top of that is if, uh, you know, when we look at NATO, when we look at Article 5, if Russia is willing to carry this attack out in, you know, such broad terms, very, very blatantly, everyone is calling them on their bullshit. Everyone is saying, we know what you're doing. We know we're not believing your disinformation. No one's believing your disinformation. And we are calling you on this. And if, you know, all the world is trying to impose consequences short of military action, and that is just doing nothing to stop Putin, then who's to say that he can't try a similar attack, a similar tactic in going after one of the NATO states, one of the Baltic states, you know, getting in really fast and then saying any attack on us will be will result in retaliation with nuclear weapons. Sure, you have your Article 5. I have nuclear weapons. You can make your decision there. Um, if we're setting a precedent that we are willing to allow something like this to occur and the best that we're going to do is wag our fingers and offer sanctions and say, you're going to go down in history for being really bad, it's effectively you know, the same kind of appeasement that we offered Adolf Hitler to, hoping that he wouldn't carry out further attacks. Well, and Dan, uh, it's, yeah, Dan, it's bad. I, I it's real bad. I want to go off that. That's an interesting con But Brian had something first. He's got something loaded up. So I, I want to let there him was, When you were, yeah, Dan, when you were talking about how, like, how our how we react to Russia, especially with sanctions, and how that could be the signals for China, etc. I was going to say it's interesting with that because, especially in recent news, we heard today that there were that Taiwan had to scramble a bunch of jets over a bunch of um, of aircraft violations by China recently over this just today. So there are it is a huge possibility that what we are seeing in Russia could give signs to other nations that are our adversaries to that they may be able to act in other theaters such as Iran, China, maybe even North Korea in some senses and their missile programs, etc. So that is a very good point. Yeah, it marks the end of, of the uni, unipolar world which American policymakers have been pining for since the end of the Cold War. I, I think the Ukrainian conflict that's going on right now marks a return to the old uh, spheres of influence kind of way of doing business, which kind of reigned before World War II. Um, and, and I just want to say a little bit about what makes a stable sphere of influence first, and then we can kind of see, well, 
how does that fit into what's happening in Ukraine right now? So, I mean, the first factor in a stable security influence, um, you need relatively clear boundaries. So in, in the case of Ukraine, right, you could say the clear boundary could be, again, because I'm a logistics guy, we can say the ability of Russians <laughs> to project power through their rail lines. You know, because as we all know, the Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, they all have the same gauge of mm -hmm. railroad line, the 15, 20 millimeter. Um, so you could say that's a relatively clear boundary. The second factor, right, in the stable Syrian influence, um, this, the powerful state that's trying to assert this sphere, it's got to have military projection power. And we're going to see if Russia can project military power effectively over Ukraine, or if they're going to get stymied, as, as Robbie and a lot of the people in this podcast think they will. Third factor, the state that is being influenced, i.e. Ukraine, has to be grudgingly acquiescent to what Russia wants. And again, we're going to see how this plays out. I mean, it's only about a, about 24 hours into the invasion. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Dan. What do you got? Um, I think that, that that's a very astute observation, and that does make a lot of sense, and I agree with you about, uh, you know, kind of the end of the uni unipolar way of thinking of things. I do think that what we do really have to look at with regard to the motivations and the systems of control established within the Russian government is an understanding that this is not about ideology the way it was in the Cold War. In many ways, it's not even entirely about security of the country. This is very much about security of the individuals. Uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't like having NATO right on his borders because it makes it very easy for the people who oppose him who are part of opposition movements to get out of the country if they need to without the security services being able to go in and chase after them. I mean, in the, I believe it's the CTSO countries, um, the, and through the Shanghai Agreement, Russia actually has a effectively a uh, you know green light to go into any countries that are uh, parlayed to the Shanghai Agreement. Um, you know their bags can't the Russian agents' bags can't be searched. They can bring whatever equipment they need to to deal with any threat deemed a terrorist threat, and they effectively have the closest thing that you can get to a license to kill uh, when it comes to anyone who's considered to be an enemy of the state. Um, now. That's in those regions. That's not in any kind of NATO region or anything like that for very obvious reason, reasons. Um, and that makes it easy for the opposition to get away. And the opposition are, while they're not exactly a threat to Putin, they are a problem. They're a thorn in his side. They're something he doesn't want people to know about. Ultimately, he and his cohorts are trying to avoid accountability for everything they've done to get to this point and everything that they continue to do to maintain their position. Um, they know that if they are held accountable for the things that they've done, Russia would very, very easily be identified as a state sponsor of terror um, with all of the perks and benefits that come with being identified as such. They're looking to avoid that. They're looking to maintain their implausible deniability, and they don't care how many men, women, and children they need to massacre in order to get to that point. Yeah, and I think what you just said, it kind of flows into the, to the final two factors that make you know, a stable sphere of influence, right? For a sphere of influence to be stable, you know, other regimes, right, United States, Germany, they have to recognize that sphere of influence. And right now, of course, they don't recognize Russian control of Ukraine. And that one, again, kind of flows into the fifth uh, factor, you know. Um, a sphere, it cannot compromise the vital interests of other great powers. And as we all know, the United States, 
and Germany have some kind of vested interest in Ukraine because there's a massive diplomatic backlash, there's massive, massive financial sanctions. I mean, and as you said, Dan, there's even uh, resistance within Russia. So again, we're going to see if this sphere of influence thing that is occurring is going to be stable or if it's going to collapse. And we just got to wait for that to play out to see what's going on. What do you got, Samaj? <laughs> every, every time Samaj has something really good, he looks pensive. Like, it's, it's incredible. It so he, he's got something loaded. It just means the juices are flowing. The juices are I'm flowing. I'm just over here sitting, relaxing, and, sink, and thinking. It could be that Jameson. But it could be that. Okay. I was going to say, that's the little juices right there. That's it's, right. Um, no, I, I definitely I agree. Um, but then that begs the question of, well, in the current state of Russia, would they be able to sustain a sphere? Ooh, you said my favorite word. <laughs> if let's say, in all intents and purposes, they get what they want in Ukraine, is it sustainable? And we'll see. But I mean, I, yeah, I'm curious. What, Brian, what do you think, just a prediction-wise? Would, would Russia be able to sustain um, a stable influence over Ukraine? At the rate it's going now... I don't think so. Okay, that's one again. Like, I want to... If I've got a betting pool now. If you don't mind me saying something right now, like, honestly, like, the events that have happened over the past eight years in general have basically helped to wane some of Russia's, Russia's influence in Ukraine, as well as the amount of resistance that is being brought up right now to, a, to the Russian invasion. I think it's showing just how much influence Russia may not have anymore. As for Ukraine, and the thing I'm curious about also is what about the other former Soviet republics? Because as the years go by, like, and more generations come in that don't remember the Soviet times and don't remember, don't remember this brotherly love of Russia, mm -hmm. specifically in Kazakh, maybe even Kazakhstan, Georgia, Azerbaijan, etc. They are going to drift away from Russia, and they're going to drift away from the idea that Russia is this, their brother nation or whatever, and that will be a detriment to Russian influence in the region. And I think Russia partially does notice know this, and they're trying to scramble to make sure that this does not affect their what they consider their sphere of influence. All right, Dan. What's your vote? So yeah, I've got a prediction as well. Um, I, I hear a lot of people talking about just, you know, a, a lot of the, the OSINT coming in about this, people talking about how, you know, Russia's going to get bogged down, it's going to be another Afghanistan, either, you know, theirs or ours. A um, lot, of, lot of issues about uh, urban warfare, et cetera, et cetera. I think that it's, uh, I guess I wouldn't say that it's clear, but it feels almost, to me, self-evident that Russia is not going in here for nation building. Um, they're not going in there to create a, you know, a nation that is going to become a beloved Russian partner. They're going in here to chop the head off the snake and leave the corpse to fester. Um, their plan is to get into Kiev and effectively kill the undesirables who they put on that list and decapitate the country in such a way that there are no real leaders left and install some kind of puppet regime, which will potentially collapse, potentially lead to Ukraine being a failed state. But Russia doesn't particularly care about that, and there's a very significant reason why. Um, if you look at Syria over the past couple of years, one of the things that Russia did with its special services and with the uh, Wagner mercenary groups 
was authorize them to assist the Assad regime in carrying out really horrendous acts against civilian populaces to really sort of force people to uh, flee the country, helping to create the refugee crisis. Um, that refugee crisis then filtered into a whole lot of people uh, going into Europe trying to seek refuge, which you know they they deserve. They should they have the right to refuge. They have the right to be protected by European powers and a uh, sustained campaign through which Russia would assist individuals who were known to be connected to nefarious groups to get into Europe and would then uh, promote propaganda inside of those countries after those individuals reached saying, hey, nefarious individuals are coming into these countries and here are some attacks that give examples of that. Um, they would magnify these attacks. They would then pump money and sponsorship into uh, very, very far right-wing ultranationalist parties within many, many Central and Eastern European countries to effectively promote this right-wing anti-NATO isolationist idea of, you know, close the borders, don't let anybody in. Um, we're creating this crisis to, uh, you know, we're creating this crisis to push your right wing. And if Syria is, uh, Syria is to um, radical uh, Islamic militants as Ukraine is to neo-Nazi militants. Uh, they've cut their teeth in this conflict over the last several years, since 2014. They have gotten significant amounts of experience in combat, in developing IEDs, in uh, running irregular warfare. And once this refugee crisis really kicks up, Russia's definitely going to start helping their own assets within separatist groups to infiltrate various European and European and Western countries as refugees to help continue to push this hard right wing um, ideology, this hard isolationist, ultranationalist ideology that's going to pull these countries further away from NATO, it's going to further destabilize them. Uh, you know, that is part of the longer term plan to destabilize all of NATO and make them significantly weaker. Uh, and again, create that uh, that multipolar world in which Russia is a major player and a major influencer. So I, I don't see them as trying to create a government in Ukraine. I see them as trying to screw it up enough that it causes a serious problem for Europe to make things easier for Russia down the line when they start looking at their uh, their real sphere of influence, largely at the Baltics, Poland, Romania, etc. So, so Dan Clegg says, just to summarize, Dan, no, Russia doesn't want a stable sphere of influence. They want unstable spheres all across Europe so they can just gobble countries up piecemeal. Is that right? That's right. Right on. Okay, what's your prediction, Samaj? What do you think? Are they trying to create a stable sphere of influence, or are they trying to do something like Dan is saying? I'm going to actually go with what Dan was saying. Okay. Um, but I will say that, yes, Russia thrives in, in instability, especially when it comes to instability in Western nations. Uh, part of their strategy, I mean, if people aren't, you know the 2008 Gerasimov Doctrine or even the notion of um, hybrid warfare, kinetic warfare, gray area warfare, stuff like that. Um, low-level uh, conflicts where you essentially, the only way to destroy democracies is internally. Usually democracies are very good with sustaining wars long-term, more so than authoritarian countries. Um, but the best way to destroy a democracy is from within. Um, Putin understands this. Russia knows this. I mean, Putin proclaimed that when he was a KGB operative, oh, it was very boring, but things started to come out that he was actually a protagonist in helping any Western and right-wing um, organizations. Um, this is what he does. If you're able to deconstruct the institutions of 
a democratic society and allow the people to essentially weaken it over time, at that point, as we saw uh, with now with Ukraine, there are a lot of Americans or people around the world that's like, support Russia. Or America, don't do nothing. It's not our fight. Russia needs that. They need that to essentially keep or acquire their former Soviet republics, their former Russian empire properties and territories. So then they're able to further destabilize Western Europe to the point where if they were to make a move against, let's say, NATO um, in Europe, by manipulating American public opinion, you've essentially frozen American politics. And you've essentially frozen Congress. And that's how usually Russian disinformation works. I've said this in the last podcast. There's been, excluding just Russian media, if you look at social media, there's been a lot of content going out, basically trying to convince the American public to that war in Ukraine is a bad idea for a multitude of reasons. It could be just saying, oh, war is just bad drama because we have intervened in too many wars. It could be, oh, it's a part of the military industrial complex. Or vice versa, how even some people are saying for because Biden has a vested interest in Ukraine over his son. There are multiple reasons for, there are multiple things that have been spread throughout the internet through either Russian disinformation or even just people propagating Russian disinformation because that's what they believe. And this has helped the Kremlin exponentially, especially for the United States, because if the population is crippled under what decision they want to make, especially in this scenario, then the decision-making apparatus, Congress, or even the president, is crippled as well because they have to listen to the public in the end. As much as maybe some people don't believe that they do have to, the politics in this country does have to listen to their constituents in the end. And one thing, actually, I want to bring up when you guys were talking about Ukraine, Trump, Russia trying to uh, disorganize Ukraine and just take Eric's piecemeal. It's funny because there was one report uh, going back, if you guys know Caspian Report, mm-hmm. he did mention a poss- there was a possibility There, I forgot this was an intelligence report or something else, but there was a rumor going around that what, what Putin wanted to do is for regime change, he wanted to change the Ukrainian constitution from instead of making it a central authority type of government where everything is from Kiev, which is close to the way it is now, it was more a federative system where all the oblasts or provinces had more rights and more abilities to act freely, which would give Moscow the ability to influence these regions a lot better. Which would be interesting, especially if he's trying to influence them to basically turn them into future Russian oblasts. Now I have a quote from a young lady who used to live over in Crimea. And she got out before 2014, before all that nastiness went down, went to France, and now she's here and she's in the mission in May. And her words, and I'm quoting here, she says, to Russia, territory is very important. NATO encroachment is a valid threat to them, and anyone who says otherwise is applying Western logic to the problem. And that's an you guys, do you guys agree with that statement? No, I agree. I would agree completely because Russian doc- logic doctrine is very different from Western logic doctrine. And the problem is we mirror image a lot of our beliefs, a lot of our philosophies on other countries, but mm-hmm. they have their own beliefs and opinions and stuff. You can look at the Middle East 
Would even go with the Russian mindset. I mean, granted, I this might make sense when I say this, but I back at George Mason University, my introduction to international relations was by a Russian. Like my um, my professor, his father worked for Gorbachev when he was general secretary. See, so. see, this is this is Samaj flexing for George Mason in case anyone didn't catch that. He dropped George Mason, not the Institute of World Politics, not Georgetown. He dropped George Mason. All right, okay, Samaj, get your right. I, I, I see who's advertising for we, you now. We can I just hear it. the applications going up on their website. Right. 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 Um, but the um, from the Russian psyche, we're talking about territory. Um, that goes back to, I mean, the Mongols. It even goes back before them. Um, this notion of, in order for Moscow or Kivrus to be secure, we have to take over as much territory as possible because of the constant continuing invasions. Even their wars with the, um, the Teutonic Knights, the Teutonic Order. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with their spars with uh, Lithuania. Um, their constant back and forth with, with Finland and etc. Um, it's for Moscow security only comes from securing a geographic space, and that space unfortunately will be the Eurasian flat plains between Berlin and the Ural Mountains. Um, that was also even during the times of the Soviet Union. That's where, especially in Ukraine, that was where a lot of the, that was their heart. For industrial production, agriculture production, military production, um, it was their main areas for their military-industrial complex. They wanted that for the sake of the belief that in order to have a guaranteed security, they need to acquire essentially as much land of that flat geographic area of Eurasian plants as possible. That's what it is. All right, Dan, I want to ask you a question, but before I do that, Brian, you've got something. I can see it in your face. And you guys, you guys can't see it, listeners, but he's got something planned. I can see it. Oh, yeah. Eyes of fire and everything. Um, no, but mostly... <laughs> What's that look? What is that look? Sorry, so, sorry listeners. Samaj and I, we looked at each other like that look where it's like, man, this kid. But anyways, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's mostly just, I, I was going to say, I just want to agree with what Samaj was saying about territory, especially because for Russia, like you just said, and we said this, I think, in previous podcasts, Russia has been invaded by multiple sources, not just the Teutonic Knights, the Teutonic Knights. They've been invaded by the Swedes, the Poles, the Turks, the Mongols, the Germans. They've been attacked by so many different... The British. The British. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. Who hasn't the British? This is also very true. But with that, they... The Russians hold a very strong sense in having that having security to them, and that's part of the reasons for why they have so much land stretching from Europe to Asia is because they wanted enough of a buffer to make sure never again. And right now, it's we're just seeing the same. We are seeing the same things with Ukraine, and with we're seeing the same things with Ukraine and possibility if. They decide to go farther. They could go even farther. In, they'll go farther into Poland, into Germany, etc. And but also we do need to remember Ukraine and Russia. Russia see also Russia sees Ukraine in some cases as its beginning, its historical beginnings under the Kievan Rus and all that, which show 
has a significant story, especially towards Vladimir Putin, who's written so much about this in many articles and has spoken about this in speeches. And uh, I would say these, yeah, these are very important facts to think about when it comes to that damn Alexander Dugan. Damn Alexander. <laughs> but go but, ahead. Uh, damn. Oh. Okay. So, so this, is, this is what I wanted to ask you real quick. So yeah, go right ahead. As we all know, you know, Putin he recognized the pro-Russian enclaves of. Help me with the names. This Donetsk, is my, Russia is not Donetsk. my. We'll say it again. Donetsk. Donetsk. You mean uh, Kaliningrad? Donetsk or no, Donetsk and oh, Luhansk. Luhansk and Donetsk. So, and my my question to you, Dan, is well, what's what's the end game for these two enclaves? Do you think they're going to become breakaway republics? Do you think Russia's going to annex them? Do you think that they're going to be reabsorbed into a very weak, crippled Ukraine, like you suggested earlier? What's what's your prediction on that? Um, well, before before I answer that question, I, I do want to mention just while we're talking about uh, you know attempted invasions of Russia, I actually myself did attempt a, a Russian invasion back in 2017. I, I you know I have to admit this, I have to disclose these kind of things. Um, I was unsuccessful, um, but uh, you know uh, it, was, it was largely because I was taken in too much by the uh, really just excellent uh, Khachapuri and um, the really really brilliant Kalyan locations there. I just I got really caught up in. Dan, yeah. Dan Clay is, no, is a different breed. Dan is a different No, I, I did. I did actually um, do. Uh, I, I got involved over there. Of course, uh, you know Brian and I have talked about this uh, to a large extent. But uh, the Russians, in particular, among Russian ex-military, uh, strike ball is very popular over there, as they call it, um, and they treat it as a very, very highly uh, sort of military simulation type thing. Most of the people involved have served in the military. So through that, and as a tourist, I was actually able to get access to the uh, Alabino weapons testing and training facility um, uh, around the time that Russia was actually testing a uh, brand new tank that they were planning to unveil at the Victory Day Parade there. So, um, you know, a lot of the uh, takes that I sort of bring to the table that are coming from the Russian military perspective, a lot of those are just from the things that I saw when I was, uh, you know, spending some time with those folks listening to their uh, conversations about doctrine, about their service in Chechnya, their service in Georgia, etc. But to answer your question specifically about Duhansk, uh, sorry, Donetsk and Luhansk, sorry, I, I combined the two there. Um, I see them uh, potentially being uh, absorbed by Russia. Potentially, uh, we you know we have heard, I believe it was the director of DSVR um, who accidentally hot, was hot mic'd um, during a uh, meeting with the Russian Security Council spit saying that uh you know he fully supported russia reabsorbing those territories and putin said no no we're just talking about recognizing them as independent right now we're not talking about that right now he said oh right sorry my mistake so either you know this guy was privy to something <laughs> that's uh coming on later later in the show or uh you know he just misspoke pretty pretty severely um and i was sort of called back uh in that moment to um when the uh, moscow apartment bombings were going on when one of the uh, one of the members of the Duma was hot mic'd saying, "Ah, yes, we're aware of the additional bombing or the additional uh, yeah, sorry, he said the additional bombing that occurred at this location, and someone had to correct him and say uh, there was actually not a bombing at that location, and then they went there and they found a bomb. So, you know, these are these are not things that are unusual in terms of uh, sources. I do think that uh, Donetsk and Luhansk will be." Um, 
to an extent potentially annexed, but I think that largely what Russia is going for in terms of territory that they would control and lock down is going to be the Black Sea um, and the parts of Ukraine that are along the Black Sea. Um, I think that they would like to have access to Kiev, but I think that they are primarily concerned with deposing the government there rather than, um, you know, setting up a longer term regime that they would control. Uh, ideally, they will set something up, uh, or not ideally, but, you know, they will plan to set something up. They will have the ideal of it lasting, but they are not going to be putting significant effort into sustaining it the way that the U.S. would in Afghanistan or even the way that the Soviet Union would in uh, also Afghanistan. Um, so we're looking at a very different kind of conflict here. Uh, but for those specific regions, yeah, I do see those becoming part of Russia, mostly because the people who are going to probably be left alive in those regions are going to ask for it. Always a positive look from you, Dan. Samaj, Samaj, what do you think? What are you thinking about this? Um, Just if they're going to be, you know, sovereign breakaway republics, or they're going to be absorbed, or something else. Well, I mean, what I can honestly see occur is let's say the occupation of a lot of the majority uh, ethnically Russian parts of Eastern and Southern Ukraine and then the establishment of a Novorossiya um, buffer state or okay. client state. So using the Donbass region and then incorporating that into other breakaway Ukrainian um, territories to form essentially a new state that's made from predominantly ethnically Russian Ukrainians. Um, it's something that Russia has always talked about that uh, it's his prior it's what Putin essentially stated a long time ago and he kind of echoes it throughout his tenure was that oh he's concerned with the well-being of Russians everywhere but primarily um, in those border regions um, the the near abroad so Kazakhstan Ukraine uh, Estonia the Baltics Belarus um, Moldova, etc., Georgia. Um, what I see happening is essentially, in a particular scenario, is that if Kiev does fall and then their pro-Russian regime is implemented into Ukraine, and let's say some sort of a union state agreement was established between Russia um, and Ukraine in the same way that Russia has a union state with Belarus, I do see. Um, parts of southern Ukraine, predominantly in the Black Sea region, as Dan alluded to, that Russia wants to essentially control um, the Black Sea. Um, much more warm water port access. The Sea of Azov has a lot of shell reserve um, deposits. Um, a lot of Ukrainian agriculture is done in eastern and southern Ukraine. Um, a lot of Ukraine's military industrial uh, facilities and production sites are in eastern and southern Ukraine. Um, as well as the, the original Soviet industrial heartland was in Ukraine. So by essentially breaking those components of Ukraine away, you're, you're effectively literally handicapping the much more Western uh, ethnically Ukrainian parts of Ukraine that Putin primarily doesn't probably care about. Um, he wants the domination um, of the Black Sea, but also having the physical... Um, geographic borders, whether that's the buffer states, the establishment of something called Novorossiya, which has been brought up before. Um, but it's interesting enough because while we were doing this, on my LinkedIn, um, a news article came up. That See, he's plugging his LinkedIn now, listeners. This is what he's doing. You can go. <laughs> hey, Turkey um, has been considering closing 
the Bosphorus Strait um, to Russian naval vessels. Um, and even they said that they understand the Treaty of Montreux. I think that's what it was. Um, open, open transport. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, but they did say that the diplomatic and the legal um, processes are moving forward. Um, the Turkish lira did drop 5% today because of this invasion. got to understand that also Turkey and Ukraine does have a working economic and security partnership. They did sell them a lot of guns. Um, but you, the Ukrainian ambassador in um, Turkey, I'm sorry, Turkey, because they changed their name. Um, <laughs> What's going on? Like the Czech Republic is now Czechia? Turkey doesn't want to be associated to a bird anymore. Like, what'd you expect? Hey, Turkey. Um, the, the Ukrainian ambassador personally requested it today. And they are evaluating the possibility of closing on the Bosphorus Straits to Russian naval vessels. Under, but they also understand through various scenarios the implications that may come. Um, if that were to happen, um, what would that mean for relations now between Russia and Turkey? Now, then we get into a situation, since Turkey's in NATO, what does that mean then? Um, that's something that Russia may want to try to avoid. But that's a different topic. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that on a different day. Well, before, before we go to anything else, Brian, we didn't get your opinion. We got two enclaves. Think they're going to be republics absorbed by Russia, absorbed by Ukraine, or something else? Well, that's for the two enclaves specifically. I think Russia already digs themselves into a hole for what they want to do. Like you, I don't think they're going to go back into uh, into like a new a government, a new Ukrainian government or anything like that by declaring them independent. It already just means that they like they can't really give it back. I think the closest thing right now is either those two enclaves are going to be stay independent or just going to be Russian puppet states, or as Dan said earlier, they'll probably be annexed in some way, shape, or form. As for Ukraine, I, it's still out there, but um, either yeah, we can have we can have this idea of Novorossiya, which is all the eastern and possibly southern. Southern Ukraine being put into one nation, or we can um, see a new government. I partially see, based on some of the things I see, I think the Russians would want to make a new government because it would. I still believe in the idea they want to figure out ways to control Ukraine easier. And one of the ways that I've been hearing about is specifically about trying to a when they, if they take over the Ukrainian government. They would try to change the constitution to make the system more federative, which would give the oblast, the provinces, more autonomy to do as they please, and would give Moscow more free hands to divide the Ukrainian government as well as to cause mischief if a similar situation, such as Ukraine wanted to join NATO or anything like that, ever happening. Because they've learned with Yanukovych, the former president in 2013, that they can't rely on a strong man to control an entire country. Period. Yeah, that's well said. That's why. Well, yeah, and there, there is a lot going on. We've covered a lot. What I'm hoping to get through at the final portion of this podcast is a brief discussion of how the United States has been trying to counter militarily this Russian buildup around Ukraine and the current invasion into it. This is all you. I don't know. 
Good on Well, there's been a lot. I mean, everyone's been talking about oh, we're in the era of great power competition, right? Yeah. That's been going on since 2014. Well, uh, Russia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. great power competition. But until recently, there hasn't been massive moves by the U.S. Army or any other services to really act on this. And on, I think it was 12 February, something was released called the Army Waypoint 2028 to 2029. And this is on YouTube. This is on uh, you know the, the Doc YouTube page, I believe. And, and basically what this is, what this doctrine is, is it announces that the U.S. Army is returning to being a division-centric force. You know, a division, you know, in the, in the American economy, is about 15,000 soldiers, uh, three to four brigades, and, and that will now be uh, what was called in the video the last independent operating unit. And, and when I first heard this, I, it sounded like unclear DOD jargon. Right? Uh -huh. Like, what does that mean? Um, but what I can figure from it is that it means is the division now is going to be the tactical unit of action around which a decisive maneuver is planned by 2029. So it's no longer the brigade combat team, um, although those will still exist. Um, these division, these divisions, the brigades inside them, they'll be more specialized in the old brigade combat teams because a brigade combat team, at least during the surge, and you know, from about 2000 up to this point. It, it's consisted of battalions that are detached and added kind of independently piecemeal, depending on what kind of operation the U.S. Army is doing. Uh, the division is going to keep battalions within brigades, within divisions, on, on a basically kind of permanent basis, is what I took away from it. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to hear your thoughts, if you guys think that's kind of a good way of going about embracing the air of great power competition. I kind of got on my soapbox, Dan. Did you catch any of that? What do you think of it? Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, no. That I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I think um, it's it's definitely an interesting perspective. It's not something that I have as much um, experience on to speak on quite as much. Um, but I do think that in general, when we're looking at changes and reforms within the U.S. military, shifting out of coin and into great power conflict. Um, and we've spoken about this previously on the show when we spoke about the NGSW competition and switching back to, uh, you know, battle rifles rather than assault rifles. And of mm -hmm. course, for those listeners who are not familiar, an assault rifle meaning a uh, weapon which is capable of firing in single burst or fully automatic and generally uses an intermediate cartridge size. Battle rifle referring to rifles of the caliber that were used in World Wars One and Two, generally much larger caliber, firing a usually larger bullet with more velocity for larger range. Um, the switch to the 6.8 millimeter, which has, uh, which has been the objective of the U S military since they put this contract out there and which they're planning to close on in the next couple of months, uh, is a significant indication that they are planning to upgrade their capabilities, uh, to be able to pierce Russian individual soldier armor. Um, and frankly, I think if we weren't doing something like that for preparation for a great power conflict, we'd be in serious trouble because, Russian capabilities in the field against the Americans, while they do, and against Western nations in general, while they do not have the same level of technological sophistication and advancement as uh, the West does, what they do have is a significant uh, level of skill in electronic warfare and cyber warfare in particular, and the capability 
through their ASAT system to take down GPS satellites. When the entire U.S. military is effectively integrated through GPS systems down to the individual soldiers and their brand new night vision devices, which use integrated um, internet capabilities and GPS capabilities, if you're able to shut that down and then your forces and the Russian forces are more or less stuck in the same location without that radio backup, without that air support, without those precision munitions, without the ability to call in the, you know, without the ability to effectively call in that hand of God to support you. And you've got the Russians with their new Ratnik armor systems, which protects uh, between 60 and I think 90% of their bodies from small arms fire up to uh, 30-06. Uh, and their own armor-piercing weapon systems, the AK-12, the SR-1 MP handguns, um, you're looking at a serious, serious bad problem for American soldiers. Uh, so if they are not upgrading their capabilities, if they're not better preparing for this great power conflict, and something ends up kicking off somewhere, um, if the Russians are not stopped from using their electronic warfare capabilities pretty much immediately, um, that is going to be devastating for U.S. troops, and the cyber warfare impact back home from any kind of conflict like that is probably going to result in major damage to the power grid and permanent damage to significant amounts of civilian life. Yeah, that's, that's right. If you don't have sustainment, if you don't have communications, you don't have acquisition, you're going to be hurt in an era of great power competition. But what do you think, Brian? I, mean, I kind of dropped a lot on you with the division-centric army and all this other stuff. What do you take away from it? Do you think the Army and the U.S. military in particular is on the right track for transforming their armed forces, or do you think they could go a different route or maybe emphasize something? I think for what's coming for us with this, with the ideas of great power structure, especially because we're not just dealing with one great power, we're dealing with several, or more specifically China and Russia at this point. Mm -hmm. I would say the changes are definitely needed, especially for... The idea of having divisions instead of just, uh, well, unfortunately, I forget names too much, battalion groups, I think. Brigade combat Brigade teams. combat teams. I think having ones, I think having more one central command over all of these, all of these uh, brigades, I think that would be very important, especially when dealing with what we are probably going to be facing in multiple regions around the world. You can involve, it could involve Europe, what, what could possibly happen in the future war between NATO and uh, Russian-supported governments, even the South China Sea, or possibly if something does erupt again, something that maybe happens in the Middle East if it involves Iran. Like, we are going to have to, like, I think the changes are very much needed for what is ahead for us, specifically. Yeah, another part of this this Army Waypoint, you know, 2028-29 component is they are trying to maintain branch specialization. So, I mean, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but, you know, military police, you know, during mm -hmm. you know, our time in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were not doing normal uh, police work. They were not preserving bases and supply routes. They were, you know, actually engaging in combat, going on raids, infiltration, stuff like that. Under this new waypoint, the MPs are going back to what they do best, which is preserving bases, supply, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, that, and that holds true for all the other uh, branches as well. So the Army, they're trying to maintain specialization, and that's fine, but it also means that there's going to be less flexibility. They're going to need more people to do these jobs, if that makes sense. Just a quick side note. Um, 
I don't know, we didn't bring it up though, but Zelensky did order compulsory enlistment and yep. general mobilization of uh, Ukraine's force. All men Putin has also done this. All men aged, eight, aged 18 to 60 have been barred from leaving the country, which means that most likely it's only women and children that'll be leaving. But I mean, that's typical in large scale migration crises. It's mostly the the women and children that mm. tend to, to leave. Um, and, that, and that's going to be interesting to see that crisis unfold. Where are they going? Are go. they going to Poland? Well, Belarus? Romania? It's funny. Before Robert, when I was with Robert earlier today, before he left, uh, we were talking about that. And told, I know Poland, Slovakia, and I think Hungary, though they're a little bit still iffy on it, they have made agreements with Ukraine to take in refugees that do come into the country. So I think they are, the EU specifically is preparing for this. They have, they're expecting this. So I think they're preparing for it better than other crises mm-hmm. we have seen in the past. Agreed. Uh, we've um, definitely had a lot to say today. A lot in this hour and 20. Um, we did cover, we did pretty well. Yeah, well, listeners, you guys wouldn't see this, but we had about seven topics planned out, <laughs> and we got through three. <laughs> so there, there was just a lot to unpack today, not just in Ukraine, but around the world. And, yeah. and we're hoping to find time to, to update you all on, on what's going on other places across the globe as well. But no, I think we covered a lot. We talked about, I think, a lot more than our average podcast, to be honest. We did. But you know, I think what we should also continue to start doing, really, is kind of going by a dime-fill framework. That's fine with me. So That's what I'm familiar with. Whenever we're, I guess, discussing a particular crisis or a country or in their operations or the case may be, mm-hmm. we can kind of go down each letter in dime-fill. So for those that don't know, dime-fill um, stands for... Defense, information, um, help me out. No. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Listeners, he forgot that the M in Dinefield was military. military. Well, we've been talking about the whole podcast. Military, economic, financial, intelligence, and law enforcement. Information. Did you say that intelligence? Intelligence, intelligence and information are two different things. I thought you said intelligence twice for a second. No. I was like, huh? I thought you did. No. The recording was us. <laughs> no, no. Intelligence and Okay. So I think I had to check for it. You did. Thank you that you, you were there. Because you forgot the M. I did. I got concerned. I did too. I was like, oh my god, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> this is not good. No, but I like I like that I like that concept. I'm, I love Dime Phil. We'll go with Dime Phil. Okay. Well, with that being said, um, oh, we just got to do a quick announcement that we are going to launch other social media platforms. Oh yeah, we have a Twitter now. So yeah, we have now a Twitter. We're planning on having a YouTube up. Very uh, soon, um, and I don't know. Instagram. Um, should we even do Facebook? But that's like for old people. You could kind of do it. I was that's more for foreign audiences. I know there's a lot of people outside of the U.S. who do use Facebook, especially so, a lot of the news from Ukraine is coming from Facebook. So we could do Facebook, a LinkedIn. We could create a the contact, but specifically to yell at Vladimir Putin. I can can be in charge of that. Eventually a Patreon. Eventually. Mm. So there's, there are things that are cooking. Um, But with that being said, yeah, Dan, what's up? 
Oh, no, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, um, with that being said, uh, we're going to conclude this third episode of the George Kennedy Roundtable. I am parched. Most likely we need another drink. Um, not water. I'm allergic to water. So, <laughs> with that being said, <laughs> thank you all for tuning in. Until next time.